This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of Business by the Numbers. I'm your host, Hunt Demarest, CPA with Parmelis and Associates. Today is part two of the three-part crash course on what we look for, what to ask for, and how do we set up a new location. So the first episode, if you haven't listened to that already, we covered how to find a new location and what to look for in that location. If you had not listened to last week's episode, stop now and go back and listen to that one first. This will all make a lot more sense. You know, Today, we're going to be talking about what to ask for, what to look for in the financials and reports, and then the basics of negotiating the deal. Last week, we talked about how to identify prospective shops, what to look for in the shops as far as size, demographic, location, you know, kind of how to pre-qualify before we get into the real meat and potatoes of the deal. Um, this is going to be a great episode for people who are obviously thinking about buying a second location, third location, possibly even more than that. Also, this is going to be really useful for those of you that are thinking about selling here in the near future. This is going to be kind of an inside look into what a prospective buyer is going to be looking for in your shop. So a lot of different ways to use this one. And even, you know, at some point, everyone's going to sell their business. You probably don't want to die in your shop. And this is going to be a good way to structure your business to sell it in the future and really how to get the top dollar out of that at that point. Before we get into all that, though, I want to have a quick word from our partners who make business by the numbers possible. How many tabs do you have open on your screen right now? Come on, be honest. Shopware's all-in-one shop management platform provides a direct integration to more than 3,000 business and marketing tools so that you can focus on your day. Visit them at GetShopware.com. At Repair Shop of Tomorrow, the focus is on helping shop owners unlock their full potential by specializing in an expert coaching and marketing program designed for your specific shop. For more information about their program, please visit them at repairshopoftomorrow.com. So at this point, you have a shop that you're interested in. And what do we do now? Now, this is not going to be an exhaustive list of what you do. This is going to be the basic. This is going to be the core. Every deal is going to be a little bit different. So don't come and say, Hunt, you didn't ask about this. You didn't cover this. This is not supposed to be the end all be all. If you've never bought another shop before, even if you have bought another shop before, you should be leveraging all of the resources that you have. You know, I'm going to be talking about this later when we talk about analyzing these financials. Talk to your accountant, talk to your coach, talk to friends, you know, not even necessarily a other fellow shop owner, but talk to fellow shop owners that have done this before. Hey, you know what? This is what I got burned on. This is what I found in the deal. And even having them look at the deals. Sometimes you're also getting outside opinion. Now, don't get the knucklehead down the street that's never been self-employed, but get people in other industries. Hey, you know what? This is what I noticed on the numbers. Here's what I think you should ask. In this situation, you're making a monstrous decision, right? We're paying hundreds, possibly millions of dollars for something, and you need to do your research. Don't get too emotional on this. A lot of people, just like buying a house or buying a car, they fall in love with it and they get kind of blinders on. I just want this deal. I don't care what it takes. I'm going to make this happen. I know it's too much, but they get really attached to this. And this is not what we want to do here. So step one of all of this, and this is probably an optional step and I don't see it a lot, but I'm going to put it in there anyways, is getting a non-disclosure agreement signed or an NDA. So a non-disclosure agreement is essentially saying, all right, I'm the prospective buyer coming to buy your shop. What I'm saying here is that anything that is transmitted between you to me and me to you is between us. I'm not going to share this with outside parties. I'm not going to share this with the public. Now, most of these NDAs are not worth the paper that they're written on because realistically, word almost always gets out. Um, you know, whether it's a vendor, whether it's a tool truck, or a lot of times, you know, the seller is even kind of putting word out that they have someone interested in this. The NDA does sometimes add a level of professionalism, right? You're saying, hey, I'm very interested in this deal. I'm serious about this. Now, where do you get an NDA? Don't go to your attorney and hopefully lawyers and stuff aren't listening to this where I'm devaluating what they do, but it's really just overkill. There's plenty of websites out there that can do an NDA and do it for free. One of the websites that I like to use when I'm trying to just kind of get boilerplate, you know, legal documents that look pretty professional is rocketlawyer.com. So if you go to rocketlawyer.com, you know, hopefully we'll try and get them to pay for some advertising here, but I just like their product. 
They're not going to let you do anything unless you sign up for a free trial. So you got to put a credit card in, but you get seven days free. What I always do is I put in a fake email, put in my credit card, make the document that I want, save it to a Word document, then turn around and cancel my subscription. Never get charged for anything and you get a great document that looks very professional. You can have a lawyer draw this up, but I guarantee you it's going to be at least $400 for it. And it's just money that you don't need to spend. But again, if you want to do an NDA, great. If the seller wants to do one, then definitely do one, right? You're going to try to be agreeable here. You're trying to be friends. You're not going to have a great time in negotiating if you're going to start off on the wrong foot of saying, I'm not signing that. What is that for? What is this? Just do it if they want to do it. If you don't care about it, they don't care about it. It is not essential. So now that we got that over with, what are we going to get from these? And so what we're going to ask for them is we're going to ask for them for a set of financials. And then we're going to also ask for the asking price. The reason of why I always want the asking price up front is to just see where the seller is. And a lot of times you either have one or two situations. Eh, you know what? They probably have one of three situations. The first situation is easy. Hey, they have an asking price. I want $1.2 million for this. Great. All right. I'm not going to say that seems high. That seems low. Because if I think that seems high, then really what that could mean is this business is making more money than I thought. I don't want to come back and say, wow, that seems really low because they're going to say, all right, I already got you there. You already think that you're getting a discount. I'm not going to negotiate. The other option is they're going to say, eh, I'm not really sure. I haven't really you know, put too much thought into it. I'm just going to tell them to throw something out. You know, And the way that I'm going to preface it is just like this. You know what? Greg, it was great to meet you. Really interested in your shop. Location looks great. Customer base looks pretty cool. I really think that we could have a deal here. What are you thinking about asking for this? I'm not going to hold you to this number. I really just want to kind of see where you're at because I don't want to waste either of our times. The reason I say that is if you say, all right, I'm going to be at 200,000 and you're asking for a million, then that's great, but I'm just not going to be a buyer and I'm going to move on. The third option is going to be, they're going to say, you know what? I have no asking price. You do your due diligence and you come back with what you think is a fair asking price. I always want to get their asking price up front because whether they admit it or not, they have something in the back of their mind of what they're willing to walk with. This one could be a little bit trickier because essentially, no matter which way they go, we're going to proceed all the same way. But if they don't give you an asking price, even a general idea, then you could be doing a lot of work just to come back and find out that you weren't even anywhere close to what it would really take to get this deal done. But no matter what it is, let's try to get an asking price. Let's try to get a general idea so that we don't waste anyone's time, whether it's theirs, whether it's ours. And you're going to be probably paying for some services, right? You're going to be possibly paying your account to look at this stuff. You're going to be spending a lot of your own time and your own energy. You don't want to do this on something that is going to be fruitless in the end. So Hunt, what kind of financials should we be looking for here? How many financials? What years? What should I be asking for? So general situation of what I want to see is I want to see three years of financials and three years of tax returns, as well as year-to-date financials, depending on what time of year it is. So if you're doing this deal, even now, right, It's when this comes out, it's going to be the first week of May, year-to-date financials might not be ready and they might not be super usable to me. I'm not going to be stressed out if they don't have year-to-date financials right now. However, if I'm doing this deal in August, September, October, November, I want to see year-to-date financials because I want to see how the current numbers are going. At that point, the previous year numbers are 8, 10 months old, and they don't really provide that much value to me if the current numbers are looking drastically different. So three years tax returns, three years financials. Why do we need both of these? So the big reason why I want to see the tax return and the financials is I'm going to probably be using the financials to do most of my analysis on there. The reason why I'm going to use the financials to do most of my analysis is financials are generally easier to read for most people, even myself, right? A well-prepared financial statement is going to be much easier to read and compare than a tax return is. But the reason that I want to see the tax return as well, I want to see that the, ta- that the financials that they are preparing internally is matching up to what they're reporting to the government, right? As long as there's no major differences there, we're good to go. Now, keep in mind here that this deal is based on a large level of trust. You can put absolutely whatever you want on a financial statement, and even more so, you can put whatever you want on a tax return as well. 
right? It's only as much as you trust these numbers on there. And so a lot of stuff of what I'm doing here is obviously looking at the absolute numbers, but I'm trying to get a general sense of, all right, how much do I trust this person? I've seen deals that have looked good on surface, but there's just been too many weird question marks. And I've had clients that have walked away from it, right? The financials look good. The tax return looked all right, but something just seemed off, right? There was not a level of trust there. The person that we were dealing with didn't seem to be the most, you know, upfront and forthright seller and just got a bad taste. And people walked away because they said, you know what? I'm not going to find out after it's too late. On the other hand, I have had plenty of clients go into a deal and maybe not be able to pick out specifically of what they did, but find out sooner rather than later that the deal that they thought that they were buying is not exactly what it turns out to be, right? So do your research on this stuff, look into it. When I talk about the tax return and the financials matching up here, I'm not worried about a couple hundred dollars, right? So let's say that this shop's doing a million dollars in sales a year. Financials are showing $125,000 profit. If the tax return shows $124,000 of profit, there's no red alert going off. Plenty of things happen, right? Especially this is a couple of years old. Maybe stuff got posted in the wrong year. Maybe there were some small timing changes or even just some adjustments when the tax returns got done. What I'm looking for is large differences, right? Hey, the sales on the financials were $1.2 million. However, when you reported on your tax return, it showed $900,000 in sales. What's up with that? On the financials, you're showing that the owner was taking $200,000 of wages, but on the tax return, I'm only seeing $50,000 of owner's compensation. Why is there a difference here? Now, one of the big reasons why you usually have a discrepancy in a net income comparing a tax return to the financials is depreciation and amortization. If the only difference is depreciation and amortization, or maybe some other smaller non-material amounts, then I'm probably going to be good to go on that. Another thing that I'm looking for on these reports, you know, without kind of getting into the details of valuating this and seeing what kind of numbers are on there, it's just the quality of the reports, right? Again, I'm trying to get kind of clues as to what we're looking at here, the level of professionalism, the level of quality of what the reports. When I ask for financials, I just don't want the profit and loss. I also want the balance sheet as well. Right, The balance sheet is going to show me the cash, going to show me the inventory, the accounts receivable. It's also going to show me the payables, the debts, everything on there. If the balance sheet is not correct, then the profit and loss is not correct. If the balance sheet has overstated the inventory, it means that the profit and loss is also overstating the net income because our cost of goods sold is not correct. And so I'm looking for large negative balances. I'm looking for stuff that is put in the wrong bucket. I'm looking for clearing accounts, transfer accounts. I'm looking at the bank accounts. All right. Are we showing $300,000 in a bank, but they're saying that they have $50,000 in a bank, right? I'm looking for stuff that just doesn't add up. And a lot of this here is you should not get the financial statements and not have any questions back, right? I'm going to go and circle. I'm going to go and highlight. And I'm just going to ask questions. I'm not going to do this in an accusatory manner. Hey, why did you put this here? Why is this there? No, just general questions. Hey, I was looking through this and you can even throw your account, right? Throw me under the bus. And I tell my clients this all the time. Well, they're going to know, they're going to ask Hunt, why am I asking all this stuff? Just say, hey, my account, look at this and had a couple questions with probably very easy answers on it. But can you just answer X, Y, and Z? Not only are you going to hopefully get your answers out of exactly what they come back, but a lot of times you can even get more just on how they answer that question and if they can even answer this, right? I want to be dealing with a professional seller that understands what they're selling here. It's going to severely devalue and kind of diminish the attractiveness of the deal if the seller is completely unaware of anything on the financials of it as well. Another thing that I'm looking at here is what kind of debt does the business have? So we're going to talk about this next week when we go into episode uh, or part three of this of actually structuring the deal. But we're going to be doing an asset sale of this. So I don't necessarily care that much about what their debt is because I'm not taking over their debt. They're going to handle that. But debt gives me clues, right? If this business is running and it has a ton of debt on that, then that's going to say, hmm, are they having to borrow money just to keep this business afloat? Does that make sense, right? Also, if they have a lot of debt on there, does that mean that they have newer equipment? Another thing that we're going to look for there is how much do they have in inventory, right? If they have a sizable amount in inventory, then that's going to probably increase the value. And I need to ask about that even further. 
Now, as a quick aside on the inventory, if they have $125,000 in inventory, how much of that is really saleable? Right, A lot of times, especially this business has been around for a long time, they could have $125,000 on the books. You might have $100,000 of inventory on there that's not even saleable anymore. Right, You might have a valve cover from Mercedes that might come around and might come back into the shop, but you might not see that for another 10 years. That's not going to be anywhere as valuable as you know normal everyday items like tires, fluids, filters, and stuff like that. Also, it's going to tell you a little bit about how they operate, right? Most shops that I see right now hold a very minimal amount of inventory. Most people just do just-in-time inventory, meaning, hey, I'll buy it from my parts vendor when I need it. I'm not going to tie up my cash and my space to store it here when the parts house can do that for me. As much as you love the shop routine that you have now, I'll tell you that switching to a cloud-based shop management system will pay off in more ways than you can imagine. Not only will you let go of bad habits that are costing you money, you'll free up more time for your techs to fix more cars. Your quotes will be quicker and more accurate, and you'll make more money per part than you ever did before. We all know that time is money. When you streamline your day, you waste less time on repetitive brain drains. Start fresh by going to your favorite browser and looking up GetShopware.com. The orange Book a Demo button will set you on a journey for more profit and less stress. You'll never look back. Check it out at GetShopware.com. At Repair Shop of Tomorrow, the focus is on helping shop owners unlock their full potential by specializing in an expert coaching and marketing program designed for your specific shop. Their mission is to coach the owners to focus on growing their bottom line and building a team culture within their business. At the Repair Shop of Tomorrow, a Napa Auto Care endorsed program, they train the owners and the staff what right looks like. So everyone is on the same page and driving towards a common goal. Their coaching program focuses on all aspects of your business so that the owner can step back from the daily grind and start to work on their business and not in their business. For more information about their programs, please visit them at repairshopoftomorrow.com. Another thing that I'm going to look on the financials is accounts receivable, right? Accounts receivable is money that customers owe to the business. Generally, most businesses now, again, don't run a lot of accounts receivable. Hey, you get your car when I get paid. There are certain situations, well, hey, it got done on a Friday. We closed it out. They came and picked up and paid on a Tuesday, right? Some sort of timing, things like that. However, if they have a large accounts receivable balance, again, that's going to give us some clues. What kind of clues is that going to give us? So if I have a really high accounts receivable, then maybe that tells me that they are doing fleet work right? You can make money on fleet work, but fleet work is completely different than retail customers. Also, if they have a large amount of accounts receivable, are all of that good money, right? If they have $55,000 in accounts receivable, but only 35,000 of that is actually good and collectible, then that $20,000 difference needs to be written off. And that's actually going to decrease the overall profitability of the business. So look into this, ask questions, you know, on that, you know, same with the inventory, Probably need to get some reports on that. Hey, show me the aging of your accounts receivable. Show me your inventory of how you came up with this value and what's kind of making that up so that you can make some educated decisions on, all right, is it overall accurate? And then also, is it what you're looking for? Does it make sense? And how is that going to increase the overall value of what you're buying here? Another thing that I'm going to look here on the financials is just the overall sales, right? This is probably the first thing that I look for to get an overall sense of what this business is doing. What is the profitability doing over this three or three and a half year period if I got year to date numbers? And what are the sales doing? Are we buying a rising ship or are we buying a sinking ship, right? And so let's go to the two extremes. I would love to see a business that did $800,000 in sales, $900,000 in sales, a million dollars in sales, and this year it's on track to do 1.1. Profitability is going up just along with the sales. Everything is looking pretty good, right? Reputation is good. This business is on the rise and I'm here to jump in when I can and take this thing to the next level. However, the exact opposite of that would be a sales or would be a shop that was doing 1.1. Then they went down to 900. Then they went down to 850. And this year is hovering around 825. Maybe they're going to go up to 875 that's going to have a lot more concern and that's going to have a lot more questions back. 
Now, this time period that we're talking about right now is a very weird one because we have COVID, right? And so if you see a decrease in sales, a lot of times people are going to have a very easy red herring to say of, oh, it was COVID, right? Oh, I had to shut down. Now, what you need to be thinking there is, is that a legitimate reason or are they just using that as a likely excuse? What is your own business doing? What are our surrounding shops doing? For most people and most shops that I deal with, COVID was a net positive, right? Sales were up, profitability was up, and most people had more work than they knew what to do with. If that was an issue, you know, if that's what happened in your shop and this prospective shop that you're looking to buy is kind of painting the exact opposite picture, I'm going to say, is that true? Or even more so, what are you guys doing or not doing that made you guys suffer so much more than you did in your own shop? So again, we're getting actual financial information. And again, just learning more about the actual business itself, it can give us some more clues. So like I mentioned before, have other people look at this, right? I get my clients all the time and I say, shoot the numbers over, right? I'll do a rough look of what this is. If you want to actually get me to do a complete valuation of this, obviously I have to charge for it. But most of the time I'm just going down through there and I'm just giving them some good bullet points. Hey, ask about this. Hey, ask about that. Hey, I noticed that this was a little bit different. Go back and ask them these questions. But overall, I think that the financials and tax returns look pretty good. On the other end of the spectrum, I've had deals where people come over and I say, time out. This thing's not going any farther. You know, the financials look nothing like the tax return. They're not even giving you the correct periods. There's negative amounts on here. There's just a lot of weird stuff going on there. In a situation like that, you really have two choices. You can go back to them and you can say, hey, guys, why don't you get your stuff together? Go take a hard look at this and then come back to me with some good financials that actually make sense. Or a lot of times people say, you know what? The deal's already done. I don't have any trust in what they're going to come back to me on here. I'm just going to move on because I just don't have a good feeling about this. Also, sometimes I look at this and I say, hey, what are they asking for it? Oh, they're asking a million bucks for it. And I say, you guys are probably done here, right? Go back and ask them if they're negotiable on that, if they're willing to entertain lower offers, because this thing is worth maybe a quarter of that and we're way far off. If they say, hey, you know what? Come back what you think it's worth and we'll talk from there. Great, we move forward. If they say, no, it's a million dollars, it's going to take nothing less, then a lot of times I go back to my clients and advise them to just move on. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your money. This is just not the deal for you. Like I mentioned before as well, you know, get friends, get fellow shop owners to look at this as well. They're going to have different ways that they look at these financials and the financials, you know, that we're going to talk about a little bit later, just to see what they come up with. There are certain things that might jump out to one person that don't jump out. The more eyes on this, the better, because we're going to get questions and hopefully get answers to come from this. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, Hunt, we have an NDA. We're not allowed to do any of this. Yes and no, right? And so NDA doesn't mean that only your eyes can look at this. It means in a reasonable sense of the deal, you're not going to go and share this with the public. But obviously, if you sign a non-disclosure agreement and you have a fellow shop owner that is going to look at this on your behalf or your accountant, right? they have a professional or fiduciary responsibility to not share any of this stuff. Hopefully you're not sharing this with people that are going to blab about this anyways. But remember, take this seriously, right? This is not for someone to just go and talk about this. This is not for them to go share with their friends as well. This is serious, right? We don't want to jeopardize these person's livelihood, especially if we don't make a deal here. So anything that you look at, anything that you see is obviously 100% confidential, right? So again, ask the questions. A lot of times those answers to the questions are going to speak volumes about what you need to do next. So let's get into what people are really here, right? Hunt, cut to the chase. What is a fair price? How much should I pay for this business? So before I get into that, I want to do a kind of quick aside here. If there is real estate involved in this deal, then split this into two amounts, right? And so anytime that a client comes to me and they say, Hunt, I'm looking to buy the shop for $1.4 million. First thing I ask them is, is there real estate involved? Yeah, there's real estate involved. And I say, all right, how much is the real estate amount? How much is the business amount? If they don't have a split of that, then you're going to go back to the seller and you're going to say, all right, you're asking for $1.4 million. How much is the real estate? How much is the business? We need to know that number because real estate is fairly easy. Real estate, you can go out and you can have it appraised. And usually a lot of times if we are going to put a deal together, 
I'll just say either, hey, you know what? The real estate seems fair because I have a good understanding of what the real estate is worth around here. Or I say, you know what? Here's what I'm going to pay for the business. The real estate, I'm willing to pay, I'm willing to pay fair market value. Whatever the bank appraises that, whatever the outside appraiser appraises it that, I'm willing to pay fair market value and that's easy. The reason we want that split out separately is because it just makes this a lot simpler, right? A business, you can value it whatever you want. The real estate is going to be a lot, lot stricter. So talking about the business side of this deal, generally a shop is worth about three times the net income to the owner of the business, okay? And so in a simple world, if you look at a financials and you see what the net income is, and let's say that net income is $100,000, then that business is worth $300,000. Now, the general range that I see is two and a half to three times, right? Two and a half would be the lower side of it. Three times would be the higher side of it. We are now sitting here in May of 2022. Almost all shops are going for right around three times. The two and a half times multiple would be, you know, once we're looking for discounts or maybe it's a declining shop, old equipment. I'll kind of touch on that a little bit here at the end when we talk about structuring this deal. But generally, when we're going to talk about here, I'm going to use this three time multiple because that's pretty much what the industry standard is right now. Things to consider here of that net income. That net income is almost never able to be used just as a net income. There are easy things that we need to add back immediately, right? I'm going to always get the EBITDA, right? EBITDA means earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, right? So think about that. Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, EBITDA. That means that I'm going to add back interest expense. I'm going to add back tax expense. Now, tax expense... A lot of people don't have this because most people are S-Corps or LLCs, so that might not be applicable. Depreciation, easy one. We're going to add back depreciation because that's not an actual cash expense. Same thing with amortization. Amortization is amortizing intangible assets like goodwill and stuff like that. So interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, I'm going to add that back. All right, great hunt. I had a shop that was showing $100,000 in net income. Once I get it, the real true EBITDA is now $150,000. That $150,000 is what I'm going to use to do the multiple from. Now, not so fast there. We are ignoring a couple other things. Is the owner taking a fair wage? Okay, so this could go one of two different ways. Most times when I see a business trying to sell their business, they are going to add back the entire amount of the owner's wages because they're going to say, well, the owner's no longer going to be there. You're now going to be there. So Greg's wages are going to go away. But this can go one of two ways. If the owner of the business right now is taking out $100,000 a year and he is an absentee owner, he doesn't write service, he doesn't turn wrenches, he comes there periodically, and he's not essential in the day-to-day operations of the business, then I might have an argument to add back his entire wages. All right, fine. I'll give you the full add back of $100,000. Generally, it's not that easy though, right? Generally, it's saying, hey, the owner takes $100,000 of wages, but he's really like kind of an assistant service advisor. I probably had to add another service advisor if the owner's not there. Maybe he's doing the book, so I might need a bookkeeper. So instead of adding back the full amount, I'm going to add back maybe a partial, right? So owner takes $100,000 out. I'm going to add back $50,000 because the other $50,000 is going to go to replace what they're doing on a day-to-day basis. However, you can see this when it goes the opposite way. What if the owner is taking $30,000 a year, but he's also the service advisor and he's also turning wrenches? Then instead of having an add back, you might actually have a subtraction, right? And so let's say that fair value for that position is $100,000 and that owner's only taking $20,000 of payroll. I'm now having to subtract $80,000 off that EBITDA number, which is going to significantly impact the bottom line of the business. This is probably the number one thing that I see. And it's always the first thing that I go back to when I'm presenting my offer back. Hey, why are you so much lower than what we were asking for? Well, hey, you add back the entire cost of the owner's payroll. He's actively involved in the business and he's not being paid fairly. And if he's not getting paid fairly or you're trying to add back the entire cost of it, then that's not truly representative of what this business can operate. I want to buy a business. I don't want to buy a high-paying job, 
especially if I'm buying a second, third, fourth, fifth location, right? Time is not something that you can ever buy. And if you're not going to be doing it, you're going to have to pay someone else to do this. Another thing is, is are they paying fair market value rent, right? If they have an outside landlord, are you going to be able to assume that lease at the same amount? If you are, then you probably don't need to make any adjustment. However, what we see a lot is owners looking to sell their business, but keep the real estate. Maybe right now they're paying themselves $4,000 a month in rent, but when you take over, they're going to put up to fair market value and pay themselves $8,000 a month or ask you to pay them $8,000 a month. Again, depending on if they're paying themselves too little or too much, we're going to have either an add back or subtraction to that value of the business. Another thing to think about here is if you're buying the real estate and the business, I'm going to put in what fair market value is for that rent, right? I'm trying to do this as two separate transactions, real estate and business, right? If they have it all owned in one, maybe they don't have any rent on there. And so I need to put a fair value rent in there. So I need to probably take a general guess here or rely on a real estate agent to say, hey, what could I get for rent? Or what are other shops in this area paying for comparable size? Maybe the shop is right now paying zero, but realistically, based on the size of their shop, they should be paying $100,000 in rent. I've seen this in a lot of situations where a shop looks very profitable, but once you start taking into fair value of wages or what the owner's doing and fair value rent, the net income goes to sometimes even a net loss. Now you have a business that is technically worthless and we're kind of looking at a real estate slash liquidation type value on it. The final thing on here, which I'm going to say I'm going to take with a grain of salt is personal expenses, non-recurring expenses, right? Let's be realistic. No one likes to pay tax and people get a little bit creative on what they like to deduct out of their business, right? Do they have personal cell phones going through there? Do they have personal utilities going down through there? A number of different things that, be, that could be going on there. You're not going to be able to pick out these personal expenses. You know, some of them might stick out like a sore thumb if they have a large amount of travel or a large amount of meals and entertainment. Essentially, I'm trying to go down and say, all right, what is realistic of what do we need to spend for this business? A lot of times for personal expenses, the easiest way is to go back to them and say, hey, how much in personal expenses are you running down through this business? Give me a rough number. If they come back and they say, you know what, I'm doing about a million dollars a year in sales, probably about $20,000 in personal expenses, I'm going to run with it and say, you know what, that sounds about right. If they're going to come and they're going to say, oh, I have $100,000, $150,000 of personal expenses, I'm going to want to have some pretty substantial details behind that. All right, prove to me that you're actually paying for this stuff out of the business and that it's really personal or discretionary expenses because all of these need to be added back into the net income of the business. Really, when I do evaluation of a shop, you know, whether they're looking to buy or sell, all of these adjustments is really where the core of the value of the business comes from. I can usually get a general idea looking at the financials, but a lot of times I'm shocked once I start going down through these addbacks and adjustments of what the true value of the business is. Now, when I have all of these addbacks, and I'm going to be doing this for the three or three and a half year period that I have, I'm going to take a flat average of this, right? And so if I did my adjustments and I have 50,000 of EBITDA or adjusted EBITDA in year one, 100,000, 150,000, I'm going to do the average of those three years and I'm going to use $100,000 as the average. That's what I'm going to base the multiple on. Now, a lot of times, even if a seller's preparing this pretty fairly, they're always going to use probably the highest amount. And that's generally the most recent year, right? And so when we're taking the average, we might be having 300,000 because that's a three times multiple of the average. On the other hand, they might have 450 because that's a three time of the most recent year. Now, we hope that the most recent year is going to be what the future is going to hold, but we need to take into consideration that there are anomalies, there's one-time things, and I'm going to argue that it's going to be more of a blended average. Now, if that's the only thing that you guys disagree upon, you can make a deal there, right? I'm at 300, you're at 450. I see where you're coming from, you see where I'm coming from. Let's meet in the middle at 375 and let's move on, right? But I'm going to go down through and I'm going to make my own spread, right? I'm going to come back to them. I'm not just going to say, guys, I'm going to pay you 300,000. Take it or leave it. You're at 450, I'm at 300. This is what it is. No, I'm going to explain it to them in 
you know, not so much detail, but I'm essentially saying, hey guys, I looked at this, right? Businesses are sold about three times multiple EBITDA. I ran the numbers. I adjusted your payroll. I adjusted the rent. I added back your personal expenses, right? I answered all of the things that I know that you're going to talk about. And here's a number that I came up with. Justify to me of why you have a higher price of what I'm coming up with. And let's see if it's reasonable and let's go from there, right? We want to be able to go back to them with a real, um, you know, nuts and bolts type reasoning of why we're offering this, not something emotional of, hey, I don't want to pay that much. That's too expensive. No, this is where I am. Here's where you are. Let's come together and let's find something that can we can both win on. At the end of the day, to keep this very simple, you want to make your money back in three years, right? And so a three-time multiple making your money back in three years is essentially the same thing, just two different ways to look at this, right? So if I pay $300,000 for this, I generally expect to make about $100,000 a year in a normal sense of this, ignoring taxes and stuff like that. I'm going to make my money back over three years. Now, what goes into this, right? All right, I'm going to buy your business for $300,000. That means I'm buying all the equipment. I'm buying the name. I'm buying the reputation. I'm buying the assembled workforce. I'm buying the customer base. All of that stuff is going to go into the purchase price of that three-time multiple. Now, there's a number of things that don't go into that one, but the big ones are inventory and then vehicles or loaner cars, right? So if the business is worth $300,000, and they have another $100,000 of inventory, then I'm going to offer them $400,000. Hey, I'm going to offer you three hundred dollars for the business and then $100,000 for inventory or whatever you have at the date of sale. It's probably going to go up, probably going to go down. That's fine. I'm willing to pay market value of whatever it is at that date. Same thing with loaner cars or vehicles, right? Hey, let's say that you have five loaner cars. I'm willing to buy your business for $300,000 I'm going to just take a guess right now and your loaner cars are worth about 50 grand. So I'll give you 350 for this is if you can come back and you say, hey, we're fine on the business, but the loaner cars are worth 70,000, then great. Show me where you got those values, show what they are. And we are all set here, right? And so the $300,000 is all encompassing, but there are other aspects that can actually increase that price a little bit. We call those non-operating assets generally. Right? It's something that is not integral in the day-to-day operations of the business, but something that adds value and something that needs to be considered. So the other, you know, we'll call this step two of the financials is some more details and some other stuff I'm looking into. I always start with the tax returns and the financials because sometimes we have deal breakers in there. Hey, we're just not close on price. Hey, I don't believe what you're putting on there. You know, this deal is just not for me. I'm not going to waste any more time. I'm going to move on. But let's say that everything looks good, everything checks out, and I have kind of a good, you know, a good spread going. I think that we're kind of in the area where we can make a deal. I'm going to start to look at some more reports, and most of the stuff is going to come out of their shop management reports. So I'm going to look at their end of day reports. I'm going to look at their business summary reports. You know, and a couple of the big hit lists I'm looking at here is I'm looking for their ARO, right? Is their ARO high? Is it higher than mine? Is it lower than mine? That's going to give me a lot of clues on what they're doing. High ARO means, hey, you know what? They're selling a lot of work, but maybe they're doing a lot of bigger jobs. Are they doing engine work? Are they doing transmission work, right? So I'm going to ask these questions back to them. On the other end of the spectrum, we might have super low ARO. Right. If we have super low ARO, then we might say, you know what? They're not doing digital inspections. They're not upselling. But another thing that that low ARO talks about, and we talked about this last week as well, maybe the customer base that they have just isn't interested in buying some of these recommended services. Maybe they're more about fixing their cars than doing preventative maintenance. So you got to keep this stuff in mind here. Another thing that I'm going to look at is sales by customers. Right? Do we have a large concentration of sales on a few customers? This is where I'm going to see is if I have a large concentration on fleet work. Hey, I did a million dollars in sales, but 400000 of that was made up of three customers. The scary thing about that is, does the shop have that relationship or does the owner have that relationship? Let's say that you go in and you buy that shop and now those three fleets say, you know what? I like dealing with Sarah. Now Sarah sold her shop. I don't want to deal with you. Now you have a shop that was doing a million and overnight you have a shop that's doing 600,000. 
So be very careful about that, but also just look into these reports and kind of see what you're seeing on there. And then the last thing that I'm going to look at too is I'm going to look at the overall margins of the business, right? What's their parts margin? What's their labor margin? What's their labor rate? How well are they marking this stuff up? I'm going to look at individual jobs. How are they packaging these deals? How are they presenting these reports? Are they doing digital inspections, right? Are they doing proposals? Are they doing estimates for their customers? How are they kind of delivering this and how are they pricing this stuff? Now, there's really two things. You could look at this and saying, hey, they're pricing this stuff fair, very similar to how I price my own jobs. I think this is a great fit. This is going to fit my culture perfectly. And I think that we're good to go. However, if you remember again from last week, a lot of times people look at this with super low labor rates, super low parts matrix, and they start licking their chops and they say, Hunt, they're just missing the boat here, right? They are not pricing this stuff effectively. I could come in there day one, you know, increase the labor rate to a fair amount, increase their parts matrix to what they should be charging, and I'm going to make a killing, right? But maybe the customers are not willing to pay that right? Maybe they have price shoppers. Maybe they have price sensitive customers. If that's the case and you go in there and you raise your labor rates, you raise your parts matrix as you should, you're going to probably lose customers. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it needs to be factored into the equation. Because remember, part of what you're buying here is not just the equipment, it's the overall value of the business, which includes the customer base and the assembled workforce. If you're going to be going in there and raising your prices and you might be washing out 50% of your customer base over the first year, you're paying for a lot of stuff that you're really going to end up throwing away when you start pricing this stuff correctly. And so whether that's high, whether it's low, take this stuff into consideration. There's a number of other reports that you can go down there and look through in the shop management software, right? Where are the leads coming from? Are they doing advertising? Are they tracking these leads? Are they even using a shop management report, right? And so there is some things that you can look at there and say, you know what? There's tweaks. There's little things that I can do. I'm going to be a lot more excited about a business that is doing things 85% correctly than a business that's doing 50% correctly. The reason I say that is if I'm going from 50% to 100%, I'm shocking the system, right? I'm doubling prices. I'm doubling quotes. I'm doubling ARO. And I'm inevitably going to lose some customers in the process. However, if I have a customer or if I have a prospective shop that's doing stuff 85% correctly, that means that if I come in there and I make some small tweaks, I'm going to make a lot more money and I'm probably going to be able to maintain these customers because it's not going to be major changes for them. And that's what gets me excited here, right? Because the the profit that you know is all in the details here. It's all in the finer details of making sure that you can maximize this stuff, but at the same flip side, not having to completely reinvent the wheel here and completely having to revamp our entire customer base. So this is what I'm looking for, you know. And again, I'm not I can't emphasize this enough. Ask questions, guys. If something doesn't look right, don't ask me. I don't know, right? I've never been in that shop. Call the owner of the shop. Ask questions. Hey, why does this person do so much business with you? Do you have a good relationship with them? Does your service advisor, right? What kind of margins are you doing on this customer? Are you doing it at a reduced rate? Do you guys do engine work? What do you shy away from? What do you guys specialize in, right? Just ask questions, get a dialogue going. You're going to be able to learn a lot more. On the other hand, you know, we talked about this in the first episode. You might be looking at a shop that's vacant, that was never a repair shop. It's possibly shut down. And you do not have the luxury of asking a lot of these questions. Now, the positive in those situations is you don't really need to factor a lot of this stuff in because most of those deals are going to be done at liquidation. Essentially, hey, the real estate is worth this. The business is worth whatever the fair value of the equipment is. Generally, if a business is shut down, I'm going to argue that it's just going to be worth whatever the real estate is. What is the value of used lift that haven't been used in a year and a half air compressor, some old piece of crap tire machine, I'm not going to pay you a premium, right? Maybe I'll give you an extra 20 grand on top of what the real estate is, but you just don't have a huge premium here. Realistically, shop equipment is worth pennies on the dollar used compared to what it is new. So now that we talked a little bit about how to, you know, what to ask for, what to look in these financials, let's talk about the basics of structuring this deal. So I'm going to emphasize this again. I always want them to give me the price first, 
right? Because if they give me a price that's $500,000 and I come back and I think this is worth $600,000, there's no way in hell I'm going to offer them $600,000, right? I'll say, hey, $500,000 is great. Where do I sign? Let's make this happen. And again, you can always go up. You can never go down, right? This is negotiating 101. If you come in and you offer $300,000, you can always go up to $400,000. If you come in and you offer $400,000, you're probably not going to come down to $300,000. The seller is going to have the same exact mindset. Their original price is probably not their drop-dead price. Just like you're selling a car, just like you're selling a house, that is their first offer of what they would like to get. Another thing here is keep it simple, right? Don't try and get overly complicated. The more complicated the deal, the more confusing it is for you, the more confusing it is for the seller, and the less helpful it is for both parties on here. So keep it simple, right? If you don't know what the value of the real estate is, then say, hey, I will pay you fair value for the real estate. The price I'm giving you right now is just for the business. I'm going to give you $500,000 for the business, and I'll give you whatever the real estate appraises for. Same with the inventory. Hey, you know what? It looks like you have a decent amount of inventory on here. I'm not going to beat you up or beat you down in the inventory. I'll give you $400,000 for the business. And then whatever the inventory is on the day of settlement, assuming it's all saleable, I'll give you another check for that too, right? Make it very straightforward. And again, like I mentioned earlier, tell them where you got this number from, right? Don't say, hey, you're going to give you $400,000 for this business. That's $300,000 less than you're asking for and take it or leave it. No, I'm going to say, hey, you know what? The difference between $700,000 and $400,000, which you didn't factor in the rent on there, right? I factored in $60,000 a year on rent, and that significantly reduced that value of the business. I need to be able to make money on the real estate and the business side of things, and that's where we come from, right? We are now kind of going into a different space here. You're going at a price of the business of what it's worth. They're coming back with a price that they want. What you need to do until ultimately when you get to a deal is when a seller has a realization of, hey, you know what? I might have wanted $700,000 for this business, but fair market value means what someone else is willing to pay for it. Now I have someone here willing to give me $400,000 and I need to make a decision. Do I want to take that deal? Do I think it's fair? Do I understand the logic or where they came from? And a lot of times they have a realization there, right? Almost never do I have a shop that is undervaluating it, right? One out of every 100 deals, someone is just really selling themselves short. 99% of the times, they're making an emotional decision, or realistically, a lot of times, they're throwing out a higher number, knowing that they'll never get it, but they're just trying to see who will bite on it. Another thing to think about here is we talk about the three times multiple, right? The three-time multiple is in a good situation with good equipment and a bright future. If you have aging equipment that's going to need to be replaced, you've got declining sales, you have a lackluster reputation, you're not pricing stuff effectively, and I know I'm going to have to turn some of those customer bases over, then maybe I'm not going to give you a three-time multiple. Maybe I'm going to give you a two, two-and-a-half-time multiple. On the same flip side of it here, guys, is let's say that you're coming up, you kind of agree with the net income on it, but their valuation is coming at a 3.2, 3.3 times multiple. That might be a little bit different than where you're at. The three time is not a rock hard thing. That is a general average of what people pay. I don't generally see stuff up to a four time multiple, but I've seen situations where people pay three, three and a half times on a deal. It's a little bit more. It's obviously premium, but if you're paying premium price, maybe it's a premium product. All right. And so if you guys are that close, and this is down to the negotiating, how much are you willing to give up? And are you willing to walk away from a deal for $30,000? Right. If you're within $30,000 on most of these deals, unless a deal is super small, make something work. Right. If you really like it, if everything else checks out, make this deal, get it done, and move on. Keep in mind here, though, and you know, this is kind of the last thing that we'll talk about this week and, you know, about the deal is the more you nickel and dime the seller, the less likely they are to help you after this deal is done, right? If you really beat the crap out of this guy and you get bottom dollar, you squeak every last cent out of him, he is not going to be there for one second after you sign that paper. He's going to throw you the keys and he's going to say, good luck, let me know how it works out, or don't, I don't really care, I got paid, right? He's going to say, you know what? You put me down to a level of where I didn't really want to be, I want to be done with this thing, so I'm moving on. 
Sometimes it might be willing to make a little bit more concessions and pay a little bit more of a premium so that he might hang around a little bit or be able to kind of sound some things off of him. Hey, you know what? Can you hang around a little bit? Put in a good word to your employees. Let them know of what I'm trying to do here. Kind of give me a vote of confidence so that I can help out. You know what? We got these couple fleet accounts. Can you make that introduction to me, right? Kind of tell them a little bit about my story. Give me a chance to kind of win them back their trust or kind of start that relationship with them. Or even a lot of times I have people that say, you know what? I'll pay you for three months. Stay on board so we have that continuity, right? I want to learn from you. I want to learn from your specific process and procedures. I want to learn about your employees. I want to learn about your customers, right? If you can have that smooth transition and not a harsh cutoff date, you're not only going to make more money, it's going to be a lot more manageable here for everyone here. So keep that in mind. So now that we have agreed upon price, now that we have agreed upon deal, next week we're going to talk about the final stage. How do we finance this deal? How do we allocate the purchase price? And how do we set up this new entity, right? So I hope that this was informative for you guys, whether you're thinking about buying a shop or think about selling your shop in the near future or down the road. These are all very good things to think about. The disclaimer that I put up before there is this is not the end-all be-all, right? This is not the only thing. Don't just listen to this podcast. Go buy it and don't consult with anyone. No, right? Use your circle of influence, right? Use your accountant, whether it's me, whether it's another accountant. Get them to look at the financials. Get them to look at the tax return. Get them to get some questions together to go back and ask the buyer. And on that same note, ask a lot of questions, right? You don't have to stick around when you sell their business. So this might be your last opportunity to get those questions answered. Talk to your friends. Talk to people that have done this before, right? Talk to other people that are successful multi-shop owners. What do you wish that you would have known? What reports do you like to look at? What gave you some good clues or maybe in the other side of it, what did you learn out? What did you find out when it was too late? So please share this with friends, share this with fellow shop owners that might be in a similar circumstance or circumstance that you would find this useful. And if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, please shoot me an email at podcast at parmelis.com. The link for that is up there in the show notes as well. So thanks again for joining me on Business by the Numbers. We will pick this up again next week for part three, the grand finale of this three-week crash course on buying a prospective second, third, or multi-location. Stay safe, and I will talk to you all soon. You've been listening to Business by the Numbers with Hunt Demarest on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Hunt on your favorite podcast listening app. Let him know what you'd like him to cover. His email is in the show notes. Hunt is all for advancing the aftermarket.